I want to thank everyone for coming, you hardy Minnesotans that made it here. So I know it's a little chilly out there, but thanks for coming. Let me uh, open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together and learn more about you through your word. We pray, Lord, that as we look at these warnings, that we would be those who stay put in Christ, that we would persevere both in our doctrine and deeds until the last day. Either you come to bring us home or we go to be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just remind you where we left off last time. We were in Hebrews 6, and we're finishing the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Remember I was going through TULIP that Calvin used to really systematize uh, some of the doctrines of grace that uh, the Reformed believers believe today. So I was going through that, and the last one, of course, is perseverance of the saints. And if you recall, I said that I like that better than eternal security because many people say, well, once saved, always saved, Therefore, you can live any way you want. Whereas the perseverance of the saints says, yes, you're eternally secure, but it also accentuates what the Bible accentuates, that is true believers are kept by the power of God in the faith until the last day. That's the big idea. So we're looking at some warning passages that Arminians often appeal to saying, hey, how can you believe in this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and the eternal security of every believer when you see these warning passages. Now, remember last time, let me put the passage on the screen, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Recall that I talked about how some people try to claim that what's being described here has nothing to do with salvation. In fact, what they'll say, I'm going to pull up my pointer, they will claim the the phrase, having been enlightened, and the phrase, have tasted, the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, they will claim all those descriptions are something less than the conversion experience. So last time I was teaching this, I showed, no, that is synonymous with a conversion experience. So what we have to do is we have to say, no, this is a genuine warning. And what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know is that if someone turns from Christ and they've fallen away, he's saying it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because if you depart from Christ, there's nowhere else to go. That's his point. Now, I went from there, then I said, look, when it comes to the elect, true believers in Jesus Christ, they heed the warnings 100% of the time. That's how we have to put the scriptures together. When Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Well, the insinuation is they're going to persevere in the faith. Why? Because they're kept by the power of God. So when it comes to these warning passages, an analogy that Bob had given me some years ago when we were doing radio together, which I really like, was think of this warning in an elevator shaft. It's a real warning. If you go past the sign and go into an empty elevator shaft, you can fall to your death. However, that sign can be 100% effective. Why? Because people see it and they say, I don't want to fall to my death. And in the same way, the warnings in Scripture are 100% effective for the elect. That the elect, those who truly believe, will heed the warnings, they'll be brought back to repentance, they'll remain in the faith. That's the idea that I think we see in Scripture. Okay. Now, again, that's not saying that these aren't real warnings. They really are. In fact, if they weren't real warnings, they wouldn't function 
to keep the elect within the fold. Just like pretend that this, this sign wasn't really there. Is it possible you'd have people going into an empty elevator shaft? Oh, yeah. But th- that sign can be 100% effective. And so it is with Scripture and the elect. Now, with that, let me come to some more warning passages as we continue in Hebrews 6, 7 through 8. Now, as I read this, this is all an agricultural metaphor. And the idea is that when God plants the, or I should say sows the seed, the crops that come up and bear good fruit are regarded as believers. But those who never bear good fruit, those who only give us thistles and thorns, are considered to be the unregenerate. Now, here I think the writer of Hebrews may have had Isaiah 5 in mind. And I want to remind you, perhaps some of you have read that recently, Isaiah 5. Remember, Isaiah talks about how Yahweh was like a magnificent vine dresser. And he plants this beautiful vineyard, he takes care of it, and he expects it to bear good fruit. But instead, what did Israel bear? Literally in the Hebrew, it says they bore stink fruit. So isn't that terrible? How would you like in in history to be regarded as one who bore stink fruit? That's not a good assessment in any way. But that's how they failed. Well, in the same way, you have the same metaphor here or analogy. Hebrews 6, 7 through 8, the writer of Hebrews says, For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Okay, now I want you to see the distinction between what's in blue and what's in red. The, those who bring forth vegetation would be those who are fruitful. They hear the word of God, and it bears fruit in their lives. They believe, and therefore they act on it. In fact, notice the term that's used is they're useful. And I love that term, euthaotos, which literally means they can do something. That the, Yeah, they're suitable. God can use them for his purposes. And so I want you to think about, remember that famous passage that Bob taught in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, then when you get to verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, meaning in his sphere, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice we were saved by faith alone, all by God's grace alone, but we were saved unto good works. So the good works don't save you, but they necessarily flow from one who is saved. So no saving faith, you're not going to be useful. Notice on the screen. So what's being described there are genuine believers. They produce fruit in both doctrine and deed. Well, that's contrasted with what you see in red. Those who hear the word, oh, they had the same opportunity, but they don't believe. And because they don't believe, they don't obey. And what do they yield? They yield thorns and thistles. Isn't it ironic that the writer of Hebrews is using the same terminology that came from the book of Genesis, thorns and thistles, which was a result of the curse. So notice those who don't believe are still just partakers of the curse. The thorns and thistles that came about in the garden as a result of sin. In fact, those who don't believe are worthless and they're going to be cursed and ends up 
that they're going to be the ones who are burned. Now, that term worthless is adakimos. This is one of Bob and I, our favorites. Adakimos has to do with weighing someone like in a test tube. That's the analogy. Don't literally think that the Hebrews had that in mind. That would be anachronistic. But the idea is that something's being tested. And I always like to think of a test tube. And so the idea then is that they're worthless because they can't perceive when they test the things of God, what is good and what's bad. I'm sorry, I got plosives. Go up, up this way. Get out of the light of fire. Okay, gotcha. There we go. How's that? Is that better? We'll find out. So worthless. In fact, I want you to turn your Bibles. I want you to see how else this term is used for adakimos. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans one twenty-eight. You'll see how else this term is used. In fact, I don't have it written in my notes. Could someone read Romans one twenty-eight for me? Yeah. Oh, thank you, Rich. Listen to Romans one twenty-eight, and you'll see how adakimos is used with a depraved mind. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Yeah, so notice that term debased. Uh, what version do you use, Rich, of the Bible? This is uh, the New King James. Oh, sure, yeah, no, very good. So debased, in some of your versions it'll say depraved, but that's adakimos. So the idea is because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, They said, we don't want you. He hands them over to a mind where he says they're unapproved. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, there's a play on words in the Greek where if you try to get it into English, it would be they disapproved of God, so God disapproved of them. Yes. Isn't that great? So they they, uh, looked at God and said, nope, not good enough for us. Right. And so God turned them over to a depraved mind. But in English, you, you miss the play on words in the Greek. Exactly right. Now, what's interesting with that adakimos mind, that's a mind that doesn't function correctly. They can't discern. Once they test God, they said, we don't want that. They want that which is ungodly. Uh, Rich, is he still, he's up to the coffee. That's all right. Um, hey, Scott, would you mind reading Romans 12.2? We caught uh, Rich in a coffee break there, our reader. <laughs> That's all right. All right, what did you say, Romans oh, I'm sorry, uh, Romans 12, 2. We're going to see that adakimos used again. Now remember, this is the passage that says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good an acceptable and perfect will of God. So notice that term prove. Does everyone see that in their Romans 12 too? That's dokimatso. So the idea is if you have a renewed mind from the scriptures, when you test the things of God, you'll know that they're genuine. You'll live a different life. You're, you have a mind that can discern good from evil. That's the opposite of what you see in Romans 128. Those who rejected the word, rejected God, and became idolaters, they can't discern that which is from God. But having a renewed mind from the scriptures that happens through conversion, that's a person who can discern once they test something and they can approve of that which is godly and disapprove of that which is ungodly. Those are the categories. And so notice in the red on the screen here in Hebrews 6.8, The unregenerate 
can't do anything pleasing to God. They're worthless. So here, clearly, the warning is, unless someone believes and remains in Christ, they're going to be worthless. Good for nothing, bringing nothing good to Christ or his kingdom. Right now, yeah, Nancy. Oh, yeah, dakimazo, the verb. Um, In English, I would transliterate it uh, D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O would be a good way of rendering it, I think. Dakimazo, yeah. So that means to test something in order to approve of it. Yep. Very good. So here's the warning. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews 6, 9 through 16, and I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews gives some comfort, even though he gives these very dire warnings. You have to remain in Christ, and if you don't remain in doctrine indeed, in Christ Jesus, you don't belong to him. But here he's going to give some comfort. Hebrews 6, 9 through 16. Notice in verse 9, the writer of Hebrews says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So in other words, he expects that those who hear his words, those that he's writing to, the writer of Hebrews, that they will heed the warnings, that they will remain within Christ, and therefore they're going to bear fruit, that they're going to be someone who's useful to God. Now notice in verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Now notice there, stop there in verse 10. Not only did they minister, but they're still doing it. Why? Because they're persevering. It's not that they ministered one time, And then they were done. They thought, well, we're done with Christ. We've tried that. No, they're still ministering. They're still persevering. Verse 11, it says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So notice the the idea. You have to persevere until the end. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 13, very significant. He says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Here's verse 14. He says, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Now, notice it goes on to say regarding, that's by the way from Genesis twenty-two seventeen. It says, and so having patiently waited, he, that's Abraham, obtained the promise. Now, what's interesting there, we'll stop. Notice the citation is from Genesis twenty-two seventeen, where God said, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Now, I want you to remember two passages in Genesis, Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Genesis 15, God cuts a covenant with Abraham. And remember, when he cuts the covenant, Abraham's asleep. And who alone walks the blood path? God does. Yeah. But in Genesis 22, even though the covenant was unilateral, even though the covenant was unconditionally given to Abraham and he believed and it was credited him as righteousness, remember Genesis 15, 6? In Genesis 22, he's asked to, to kill his son, his only son. And all through that Genesis 22 account, there's a narrative that's going on that reminds you, because you're a New Testament believer, of what Christ did. You see, God sacrificed his son, his only son. 
And remember, how long did Abraham travel to Mount Moriah to kill his son? It was for three days. So for three days, Abraham's son is as good as dead. Why? Because the God of heaven and earth said, you've got to kill him. So for three days as he travels, Abraham says, my only son's dead. How long was Jesus in the tomb, God's only son? It was for three days. So Abraham sees Mount Moriah from afar off. And in Genesis 22, 5, he says to his servants, you stay here, me and the lad, Isaac, are going up to sacrifice, but we, third person plural, will return. Wait a minute. Abraham is supposed to kill his son, but yet in Genesis 22, 5, he expresses faith that his son will live. Why does he believe that? Because he knew and he believed God in Genesis 15 that the promised Messiah is going to come from his son. So he reasons, I believe God. He's given me this son. Therefore, he has to live. And even though God may slay him, he's going to have to raise him from the dead. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven nineteen that he even believed in the resurrection. In a figurative sense. Yeah, Bob. What you're teaching us here, it really underscores how seriously God takes typology in yes. the Bible. Yes. And a type uh, is intended by God, and it is binding Scripture. Yes. So that the, even though somebody say, well, where does it say that Jesus Christ will be raised on the third day? It does a number of places, but in type. In type, yes. But yet the type is that serious. That's right. And and it also would is right to say, and the scripture cannot be broken. Absolutely. Okay, so typology isn't the domain of somebody with too big of imagination. That's right. Who probably should be writing science fiction. Yeah. That's not the case. It's serious, <laughs> literal. Bible prophecy yes. being fulfilled, and the author of Hebrews takes it so seriously that things like the the wilderness wandering and craving yeah. evil things are literally applied to Christians as warnings, right. and they're valid warnings. Amen. Well said, Bob. Yes, this typology is real prophecy. So. Think about this. I think it's Hosea 6, if I recall correctly. Remember it says that because you've been faithful, or excuse me, yeah, that's the idea that they repent, they return, they're faithful, Israel, that he will raise them up on the third day. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, Israel never really was faithful. They failed at every point. So Jesus comes on the scene of history, and he's the faithful one that Israel never was. He's the faithful son. So what happens? He's raised on the third day. So what Bob is saying is this typology is real. It's really part of prophecy. In fact, remember we were doing eschatology prior to this, and I told you that the Bible has a precursor in it that is a precedent that's set all the way through where the people of God are saved, and then the wrath comes. So think about Noah and his family. Noah and his family are brought into an ark, and for all intents and purposes, it's the only way they can be saved. I mean, I guess God could have taken them out of the world, but he puts them in a different location for all intents and purposes by being in the ark and they're spared from the wrath of God that comes in the flood. Go to Lot and his family. Are they not brought out of the city prior to the fire coming? Oh, absolutely. So isn't it interesting when Jesus talks about his coming, what does he borrow from? 
Matthew 24, he says, as, is, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Why? Why does he do that? Because in the days of Noah, the people of God, eight of them, Noah's family were saved, the wrath came. Luke 17, Jesus says, as it was in the days of the, excuse me, in the days of Lot, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Why does he do that? Because Lot's family was saved, then the wrath came. So that's the way it's going to be in the future. So do you see when you and I say, well, no, we're going to be spared from the wrath of God. We're just interpreting the Bible in its type, in the precedent that's been set as given to us by Christ. The same thing happens here. So here in Genesis 22, the big picture is Abraham acted on what he really believed. Genesis 15, he believes. Genesis 22, he acts. And his action by willing to sacrifice his son, his only son, by trusting in God so much that he's willing to go up to Mount Moriah and he confesses to his servants, we, we plural, are going to return, he's acting on what he really believes. So what about in your life? Let's say you see, you know, I really believe in Jesus, but you turn and you start acting a different way. You act in a way that you are really demonstrating that you don't believe. You act no better than the heathens of this world. Well, that's evidence that you don't really believe. And that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. If you really believe, you're going to act on that belief. And that's why I think Genesis 22 is so powerful. And by the way, this is why there's no discrepancy between Romans. Remember Romans 4? Paul talks about salvation's always been by faith, and he borrows from Genesis 15. But a lot of people will say, no, no, no. In James, James cites Genesis 22, and says that faith without works is dead. Well, you see, James isn't contradicting Paul at all. James is just focusing that if you, on the idea in Genesis 22 that if you really believe, if you really have saving faith, you act on it. If you put James and Paul in the same room, they would have no argument with one another. One citing Genesis 15, the belief. The other citing Genesis 22, the action that follows from belief. But there's no contradiction. Yeah. I was just researching a book yesterday from a guy who turns out to be emergent, although he's uh, ambivalent about whether he is. Yeah. But that's one of their favorite verses. But they're using it to promote their version of Christian Marxism. Yes. So the works we're supposed to do is go out and make the world a better place to live in. Yeah, right. Otherwise, you don't have real faith. Yeah. But... I was thinking about that verse when I was reading that guy's book. Yep. Dad, think of that term debt. What exactly is conversion? Yeah. It's going from death to life, from darkness to light. Amen. From the dominion of Satan to God. So true faith cannot be dead. Yeah. If you go back to Ephesians 2. Right. You were dead. That's what we were before we believed. Right. So no believer in Christ is truly dead. That's right. So James is using irony, sort of like another one of these warnings. Yeah. It's like, okay, if you are alive, this is what it looks like. That's right. If it's not there, you may very well be dead and you are... Yeah. Just giving mental assent to some facts, but you don't actually believe. That's right. 
That's right. Well said. You know, and Bob, that's so important, this idea of mental assent only. How many years ago was that Lordship Salvation controversy that John McCarthy? That was a big thing in the 80s. That Why don't was you explain the, that to everyone? What yeah, that was back about. in the 80s, you know, John MacArthur published a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. Mm. All right? And when the it's book came out, there's a segment of evangelicalism that I would put in the category of the once saved, always saved. Yeah. In other words, if you signed a card, put your hand up, went forward, said a prayer, whatever, then you're saved. And then actually living a fruitful life of discipleship would be a higher order experience like death to self. Right. Okay. And so what's um, normative for Christians, they could consider a second blessing. And then faith would be mental assent to facts. Right. So when MacArthur confronted that with his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, they accused him of teaching salvation by works. Yeah. And so that if you believe in those facts, you are saved. And no matter, no matter what. Yeah. And in order to get people to actually live fruitful Christian lives... They have meetings where you commit to lordship or die to self or right. receive the spirit. There's always got to be a second blessing. Now, I've written about all of this. You have Keswick holiness. You have the Pentecostalism. And so actually serving Christ is a second blessing. Being saved is mental ascent. Raising a hand, signing a card, going forward to Billy Graham meeting. Whereas we're saying the Bible says no. This is all explained by the parable of the sower. Yeah, we'll come seeds, to that exactly. Which we're going to come to. Yeah. That there's always, it's already, Jesus already said there's going to be people that say, yay, yay, yes, yes, but don't actually do it. And don't bring forth any fruit. And one, one of those examples happened with the disciples, and that was Judas. Right, right. Okay. So that was a huge controversy. It's still out there. Yeah. But there's a segment of evangelicalism who believes that faith is mental assent and that actual obedience is for more dedicated, mature Christians. That's right. Not that they're against anybody obeying, but if it's not there, that's not a sign that you're not saved. Yeah, so this controversy, well said, Bob, this controversy is if you just have mental assent in the facts who Jesus is or was and is, then you're saved. Well, the problem with that is a lot of these people would end up living like the devil, let me give you an example from my own background. I was some years ago at our cabin, and there's some dear relatives that I had up there. One is involved with the emerging church now, the father. But his son at the time was a committed atheist in his 20s. And I was debating with him about atheism and trying to show him that we have great evidence to believe in the existence of God. I used the cosmological argument, the teleological argument. And by the way, these are foolproof arguments. He just didn't want to believe it. Atheism is really, I want to live any way I want. That's really what it's about. But nonetheless, I expressed at the end my concern for his soul and his salvation. At that time, his father, who was listening to this, said, oh, don't worry, Eric. He says back when he was eight years old, he came forward at a meeting and confessed Christ. Okay? So what Bob is saying is, look, this is something that happened because of evangelicalism and this once saved, always saved, that if I just had mental assent at one point in my life that I, that I believed the facts about Jesus... I was saved. That's not what saving faith is. 
So let me give you, and I didn't plan on doing this, but let me just give you three elements that the reformers, which I think they're right on, gave about saving faith. Let me tell you what they are, and I'll explain how we can kind of prove them. There's three elements that the reformers said that are part and parcel, part of saving faith. We'll leave it at that. And the first one is mental assent. Yes, we have to know the facts about Jesus and affirm that these facts are true, who he is, what he did, all the things concerning Christ from the Bible. So that is assent, okay? But prior to that, we have to have knowledge because after all, how are you going to trust and have mental assent in someone that you don't know? So the first part of saving faith is knowledge. You have to have the knowledge of Christ. Second part, you have to have mental assent that the facts are true, but you're still not saved at that point. There's a third element. It's called fiducia. So there's knowledge. In, in Latin, I'll give you the Latin phrases. It's noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Those are the three elements. The controversy that Bob is talking about is in the 80s and 90s, you had people are saying no mental assent of the knowledge of the facts is sufficient. The problem with that is, remember in the book of James, it says that even the demons believe and they shudder. The demons have true notitia, knowledge about who Jesus is. They even have mental assent saying, yes, we know he's the son of God. We believe these facts are true. But they don't have fiducia or trust. They want nothing to do with him. In fact, a great passage that teaches that is, remember in Matthew 8, Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac, the, the garrison, and he sends them into the swine. But prior to sending them in the swine, the demons say, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Are you now going to judge us before the time? So even notice there in Matthew 8 that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. So therefore, mental assent of the facts of who Jesus is isn't sufficient. It has to be trust. That's what's demonstrated so beautifully in Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Oh yes, Abraham has knowledge of God. He has mental assent to the facts of the promises of God but he really trusts in it to the point of obedience of bringing his son, his only son, to be sacrificed at Mount Moriah. He really believes he has fiducia, he has trust. What would would you think of me if I said, yeah, I believe, I have knowledge that that's a chair, I have mental assent that it's a chair, but I won't sit in it. Well, that means I don't really trust it. That's what fiducia is. It's saying, yes, I know who Christ is, I believe all the facts about him are true, and he's for me. I'm trusting in him. I know that I will never be disappointed. So that's the third element that's necessary in salvation. It's that trust that leads people to truly act in what they believe. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews is warning to say, look, it's not sufficient to have one time in your life mental assent. You have to trust in this Christ, and you will the remainder of your life. You will, in fact, persevere in the faith. Now, let me give you another warning passage. Here is from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 28. Now, here you're going to see a play off of the old covenant and the new. There's going to be a lesser to greater. If it was bad to reject the old covenant, how much greater is it to reject the new covenant? Hebrews 10, 26 through 28, the writer of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment 
and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, dear ones, notice in the, the phrase in the beginning there in red, if we go on sinning willfully, the participle there, it's a present active participle. Let me point in the screen. Notice the term sinning. The present tense means this is something that you do, 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 do. It's never something implied. It's never something you repent of. You just keep doing it. In fact, notice these are people who are sinning willfully. By the way, the term willfully there, hekusios, means intentionally, knowing full well that it's sin before God. So this would be very similar to what you see in the Old Testament where someone was sinning with a high hand. Now, what did it mean to sin with a high hand in the Old Testament? You see this like in Numbers 15. Well, it meant that someone knew what the Lord had commanded. They knew what they were doing with sin. And it wasn't just that they, well, I'm so tempted, I'm going to do it. It wasn't even just that. They just said, I don't care. I don't care what the Lord has said. I will be the Lord of my life. By the way, that's what church discipline is reserved for. It's not reserved for Christians who repent or sin and then repent. It's reserved for Christians who are claiming the right to sin in the church of the living God. Yeah, Jesse. Um, so 15 years ago or so, I worked for a um, popular radio, Christian radio host here in the Metro. Yeah. And going back to the no lordship salvation issue that we were just discussing, she had a guest on one day that was talking about Galatians 5. And according to him, in Galatians 5, where he's talking about the works of the flesh are evident adultery, adultery, fornication, on and on. There's this whole list, and you get to the end, and it says, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then you get to the fruit of, of the Spirit. And, yeah. and he took those passages and said, okay, the first group, those are the Christians who are just kind of worldly Christians, oh. and they won't reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom. So he equivocates on the term kingdom of God wow. and says, well, okay, so they just won't reign with Christ in the kingdom of God. Wow. That's how they don't inherit it. And then the really good Christians who live by the second passage, well, then they get get a special status in the end times because they worked so hard and they were so good. Okay. Now, when you contrast that with this verse, that is a very serious heresy. It I mean, is. that is a dangerous, serious heresy to say, well, okay, you can, you know, you can be an adulterous Christian. That's fine. You just you know, aren't going to get the special status at the end. Right. So then I had quite a debate on my hands. Um, th- this particular um, radio host was on all all over the nation, and it was my job to send this program out to all these other stations. Oh, my. And um, just... What did you do, Jesse? Did you- I, first I called her, and she didn't listen, so then I emailed the people who were on the board at the time and said, I can't in good conscience do this. If somebody else wants to send it, I'll give you all the information, but this doesn't sit right with me. I can't put this out. I believe it's too dangerous of a thing. I mean, I, I put out other programs I didn't agree with, but this was too serious 
to send out all around the United yeah, States. Well and um, the person who was the head of the board at the time said, we won't ask you to violate your conscience. We won't. We'll, they pulled the program. Oh, they did. So, good. yeah, well, they didn't necessarily agree with me. OK, but because it was something that I felt so strongly with. And in all the years I worked for her, it was the only time I ever did that. But they said, OK, we'll agree yeah. to not. Send something, send a replay out. We won't do this one. So, yeah. so there's another ramification of believing that you have this two tiered Christian system where you have the nominal Christians and they really can still live in the flesh and just muck it up in this world. But then you have this higher ordered Christian that Baba is always warning us about where they're the ones who are really going to fulfill the deeds of the Spirit. Whereas in Galatians 5, the contrast between the flesh and the spirit is a contrast between those who are perishing, those are those who are in the flesh. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that's contrasted with those who are in the spirit. The spirit is, those who are in the spirit are those who belong to Christ. Having the Holy Spirit is the essential ingredient, what's called the sine qua non, without which it's not. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. And so there's two spheres. You're either in the flesh or you're in the Spirit. When Jesus Christ ascended on high after his resurrection, when he ascended, what did he send? He sent the Spirit. So he baptizes us in the Spirit. And as you and I remain in the Spirit, we are those who are the people of God. So that's the contrast. Remember, what did Joel promise in Joel chapter 2? In the last days, what was he going to send? His spirit. So if you're not a partaker, you're not living in the realm of the spirit, you don't belong to God. And so as Jesse's pointing out, how can a Christian take that passage and say, well, the spirit is only for certain Christians being in that sphere? No, if you're outside the spirit, you're not a believer. That's the whole point. Bob. Well, that, see, that whole issue, Yeah. going back to the 60s is a little out of that was popular, but right. continues to this day. I wrote an article. I, I attached a name to it. I recently got a good email from guys researching this. Yeah. I hope my name sticks. It's called, I call it pietism. Yeah. Higher order Christians. Well, part of what happens in church history is that people don't want to admit that their children aren't really Christians. Yeah. Okay. And I know in my lifetime, we had the Lutheran renewal, the Lutheran Conference on the Holy Spirit. And Lutheranism teaches that baptism saves you. Okay? Yeah. And so all these babies are baptized. They're all saved. But they're in this state many times. Yes. You know, if they're not converted at an early age, they're actually not doing anything but living in the flesh. Well, then... Because there was a lack of teaching about the Holy Spirit. And we knew a lot of people became lifetime Christian friends who got involved. They said, well, you haven't received the Spirit. Okay, you were baptized, but you haven't received the Spirit. So they had the renewal, Lutheran Conference on the Holy Spirit. And a lot of things happened. Yeah. And what they were doing is interpreting that as a secondary Plus, experience yeah. when, in fact, that was their conversion. Because for the people I knew, I saw fruit from then on, and they were just, they were really showing the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, in the 
Baptist world, they would send evangelists to the Baptist church with sermons trying to get people to make Jesus Lord. So they put that into a secondary experience. So you had the ordinary Baptists and then the ones who made Jesus Lord. And the evangelists would get people to commit to certain things or however they would do it. And there are various versions of it. And my claim is all of these higher order, second blessings, pietists are, are false. Yeah, absolutely. There are not two types of Christians. They're the two types in reality are the saved and the lost. That's right. And Christians have the spirit. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Yeah. If indeed the spirit of the Lord dwells in you. Amen. And so don't get confused. This is just what being a Christian looks like. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, temperance, the various things. And if a Christian does fall into sin, which happens, and is confronted about it, he or she will repent and not sin with a high hand. That's right. Won't do that. Won't say, I have a right right to whatever it is. Because I run into people like that. Uh, I have a right to go through wives until I find the one I really like. Yeah. That's right. No. Uh, okay. And they just leave. But they're sitting with a high hand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Brian. It, you may find it peculiar that somebody would like this uh, verse, this section of Hebrews is one of their favorite, but it's always been one of mine because yeah. 21 years ago when I started studying under Bob, we were in the book of Hebrews, and just a few verses later it says, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God, yes. in which Bob replied, you won't find that on somebody's refrigerator magnet. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. I made him a refrigerator magnet of that yeah. verse. Yeah. yeah, that's very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, I'm sorry, Christy. Okay, is it on? All right. So that's an interesting passage, and this is a totally different topic, but I'm curious how in this um, section it talks about going on sinning willfully, but then it draws in the law of Moses at the end. And we, we know that the, the New Testament, you know, has surpassed the Old Testament. But why specifically yeah. Very good would question. that be drawn in here? Yeah, let me explain that. Very good question, Christy. So if we're no new, what Christy's saying is, look, if we're New Covenant Christians, we're bound by the New Covenant. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8.13 that the Old Covenant is obsolete. Then why does it mention in verse 28 that if anyone has set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses? Christy, the writer of Hebrews is not suggesting by saying that that we're bound by the Old Covenant that or people who are sinning are sinning against Moses. What he's simply doing is a lesser to greater. So, so the Hebrews love to argue either from greater to lesser or lesser to greater. I forget, um, there's a, a great Hebrew phrase for that. But the lesser to greater is that, look, if those who are in the wilderness neglected the Mosaic Covenant and fell to their own destruction. In other words, they didn't believe and therefore they didn't obey Moses. And they incurred judgment for that. 
how much greater is the judgment for those who don't believe and therefore don't obey the new covenant, namely Jesus Christ and his apostles, because we have greater revelation, we have a greater covenant, and therefore there's greater culpability. So that's the whole point. Does that make sense? Yeah, very good. It says that in the next verse I'll read. Oh, yeah, thank you. I have my Greek side by side with King James, so I'm reading from the King James here. Yeah. Verse 29, Hebrews 10, of how much sorer punishment, sorer meaning worse, Oh, yeah, I've got it on my screen. Suppose ye shall, he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. In other words, it's going to be worse. Yeah. If you die without mercy under Moses when all they had was the blood of bulls and goats, and now you're trodden underfoot the blood of Christ, it's going to be worse. That's right. And so it's, it's literally a lesser to greater argument. Amen. And... This is pretty scary. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and so remember, um, and by the way, you can get more information. Bob has all this on our website, and it's at CIC as well for the lessons in Hebrews. But remember, the issue with the Hebrews was there was really a temptation to go back to temple Judaism because the temple was still there. We believe that this was written prior, the book of Hebrews, prior to 70 AD. So the idea then is if you go back to Judaism, there's really nothing to repent to because Christ has come. So once the old has been put away, you can't go back because the new is here. What are you going to repent? If you had Christ, he said, I tried him. He's not sufficient. There's nothing else to repent unto. He's the final answer. He's the final word. It's the final covenant. In fact, it's the eternal covenant. The writer of Hebrews declares that. So that's the whole point is don't go back. And if they perish by not believing the old covenant, how much worse is it going to be for those who don't believe the new covenant and therefore disobey. That's the whole point. Now, let me have you turn your attention. I want to talk about this idea then of perseverance and how it is that we can have people who seem to be believers. They have a profession, but they don't have possession. And that's what confuses people because true believers who really have not only the profession, that's important, but also have the possession, they really have the knowledge, the assent, and the fiducia, the trust, They really persevere. And one of the greatest illustrations of this is the parable of the soils. So I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and we'll read the whole thing here. We have time, I think. We have 15 minutes. Mark chapter 4. Now, the reason this is such an important parable is Jesus himself says, if you don't understand this parable to his disciples, how will you then understand any of the parables? So listen to what he says. And this is talking about the different types of soil, referring to different types of people who hear the word. But at the end of the day, there's only one soil type that ends up bearing fruit, that ends up really having genuine belief. Mark 4, 1 through 12. Notice it begins in verse 1. It says, he began to teach them again by the sea. Now stop there. There's two things that happen in the gospel of Mark. Anytime Jesus is in the wilderness or by the sea, He is confronting typically the demonic. The sea represents the abyss. The wilderness is something that has to be overcome. So here he's giving a message in which really it's imperative for them to believe. They really have to believe that the kingdom of God is coming, not because Messiah is wiping out the enemies, but because the word of God is proclaimed daily. And whoever believes will be partakers of the kingdom. So that's how significant this this is. It's a confrontation of the demonic. He began to teach again by the sea. 
And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up. But because it had no depth of soil and after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no, no root, it withered away. Verse 7, it says, Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell on the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Verse 9, it says, And he was saying, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, verse 10, it says, As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, so this is a wider group than just the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. So stop there. This is synonymous with Matthew 13, 11, where he says his disciples, he explains to them plainly, but to everyone else, he gives them only parables. It's part of hardening. Now in verse 12, he says, So that Isaiah, well, this is Isaiah 6, 9, he says, While seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. In verse 13 it says, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Now stop there. Why is he so harsh there? If you don't understand this parable, you're not going to understand any of the parables. Let me explain what's going on here. The Jews believed in a, a Messiah that didn't come to suffer, but came to conquer. In fact, so much so, do you remember after Peter confesses who Christ is? Remember at Caesarea Philippi? He asked him, who do you say that I am? And remember Peter ultimately confesses you are the Christ? But right after that, Jesus says that he's going to have to die at the hands of godless men in Jerusalem on the cross. And Peter says, may it never be. Because in Peter as a Jew, in his theology, he can't conceive of Messiah that's coming to suffer. He conceives only as Messiah who sits on the throne in Jerusalem and, and subdues all the nations. So what they can't understand is how the kingdom, therefore, is being built. The kingdom is currently being built as Jesus is proclaiming his word. It's not coming just because Jesus sits on the throne. That comes at a second advent. So as he comes the first time, it doesn't seem likely that this kingdom in Jesus proclaiming the kingdom is real. So the idea then is that this kingdom is really being built in its imperceptible demand. Because it's being built not because Jesus comes a second time, he will, and he sits on the throne, but it's being built through the proclamation of this word. And those who believe, there's no fanfare, there's no horn, there's no lights that come from heaven saying, ding, 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 he wins, he wins, he's part, he's in the kingdom, he's in the kingdom. There's nothing. There's silence, there's no sign. People believe and they enter into the kingdom. But there's so many else that are going to hear the word that's sowed upon them, and they don't believe, and they're not part of the kingdom. And so the Jews have to have this understanding that the kingdom is being built, and it's imperceptible to mankind. It's only for those who believe 
the word that's being sowed. So now Jesus gives us, by the way, the authoritative interpretation. So we don't have to guess what it means. He tells us, notice in verse 14, he says, the sower sows the word. I love that. That's verse 14. What's the seed? It's the word of God. What does Paul say in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Christ speaks for God. He and his apostles are the, give the terms of the new covenant. So he's the one who's sowing the word. Verse 15, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, now he's going through each, each soil type, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So stop there. Notice that soil type, that type of person, doesn't even give any indication that there's a profession. They just don't believe. But notice it gets a little trickier now. He says, in a similar way, he talks about the next soil type. These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Verse 17, it says, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction, tribulation, literally, or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Stop there. They don't persevere. They go elsewhere. They tried Christ, and they don't stay put. They move away. That's not genuine salvation. They're not part of the kingdom. Verse 18, the next soil type. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, notice the very last. These are the people who are saved. Last soil type, verse 20. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Bearing fruit means not only do they believe initially, but they remain in the faith, so they bear fruit in both doctrine and deed. And the idea is that they persevere. They don't begin with Christ and then leave him. That was the warning in Hebrews. The warning for the Hebrew Christians was you began with Christ, don't go back to the temple. If that's true, you're going to be one of the other soils that are going to perish. So that's the parable of the sower. And I think those soils really show us that there's a lot of people who may seem to have professed Christ, but in reality, they don't possess Christ. That's why I can have a nephew who, when he was eight years old, put his hand forward and probably genuinely thought he wanted something of this Christ. But just 12 years later, he's an avowed atheist. Why? Because he wasn't of the latter soil. So that shows us the importance of persevering in the faith. It's only those who really persevere that are saved. And that's why I think the Reformed tradition really did have it right when it comes to the perseverance of the saints. It's a good way of putting it. It's what the scriptures teach. Now again, we've showed a lot of places where the Reformed is dead wrong. But when it comes to the perseverance of the saints, they really had their categories down, didn't they? Okay, so that any questions? I, I, I'm going to have just two slides left, I think, um, but I don't want to try to get into them now. We only have five minutes. Yes, Rich. I, I think the difference is, and I've lived both sides of the fence, so I, yeah. I kind of know about this. I, I used to believe I was saved because of an act of my own will. You know, when I was yeah. five years old, I accepted Jesus, and so I had to keep that up, you know, by doing various things, money, yeah. you know, giving money and doing these things and all sorts of things. But so my faith was convoluted. My faith was really in myself and the act of my own will. 
Yeah. But when I come to find out that no salvation is 100% God, he chose us from before the foundation of the earth, everything changes. I'm like, oh, I can rest. My faith is in Christ and not in myself. I don't have to go through these steps. I call it obligatory Christianity, or I'm obligated to make him Lord and Savior. I'm obligated to do this and that and the other thing. And it's rather tiresome. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. When my faith is in Christ alone, it's like, ah. Yes. You know, it's like, wow, my faith is in Christ 100% and everything is different now. That's right. Well said. Let me give you an illustration that illustrates that. Some years ago, um, there was a ministry, and the the Fishers remember this ministry. There was a ministry to, um, it was called, uh, what, Bill, do you remember the name of that prison ministry that we were going to? Freedom Freedom Works. Thank you. And I was invited there to speak one time. Well, there was a Catholic man there, and I was teaching on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And what's interesting is what the Catholics do with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is they say, well, see, my works are necessary for my salvation. But they come up with works that Christ never ordained, that never gave. Okay, so for example, their good works in the Catholic system, as soon as they're baptized, they're regenerated and saved. So let's say you're a baby boy or girl and you're baptized, you're regenerated, you're saved. But as soon as you sin, you now enter into a system where you have to go into penance. Um, If penance fail, there's the meritorious work of the saints. You have also purgatory and all of these things that are works. What they do is they say, aha, these are the works in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But notice those good works have nothing to do, number one, with what Christ commanded. But number two, and more importantly, those works are an attack on Christ alone. So so there are some people who will trust, like you were pointing out, they had trust and faith, but the faith wasn't in the finished work of Christ. It was in what they do, or it was in this system, or it was in this penance, or it was in this ritual But those works won't save. It's the works that Christ has given his people. Those flow from acknowledging that salvation is only through faith alone in Christ alone. And so then, as we believe that, the good works that he enables us to do, we end up doing not to earn, but out of the gratitude for the salvation that we've been given. And that's why he's given us gifts of the Spirit, gifts that enable us to do that which is pleasing to him. So you're right. Um, I think there's a lot of people in that boat, Rich, where they trust in works. They trust in... uh, How many in here have ever heard of the Word of Faith movement? The Word of Faith movement? Do you know what their faith is really in? Their faith. (laughs) They have faith in themselves. Faith is a force. If they exercise their faith, they get certain things. But their faith isn't directed toward the only valid object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. So that's a very good point, Rich. Many people are trusting... They have trust, but it's not in Christ alone. It's in their works. Yes, Peter. Um, along with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10, yeah. couldn't we say that one proceeds from the other? Absolutely. In other words, there's an order? Yeah, I, the, the, there is. Um, what I like to say, the analogy I like to use, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, you're saved by faith alone, by God's grace alone. So even the faith is a gift of God. But in verse 10, it flows from that, our work that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the, the analogy I've used, I used this for some teenagers years ago, and I, I think it's maybe helpful. Think of your car, and think of a car, and the analogy of a car is salvation. What makes the car go is its engine. 
The engine is saving faith. So the engine of our salvation, the engine of our car, salvation is the car, the engine is faith. If your faith is valid, if it's on, if it's functioning, you must produce exhaust. Exhaust is the good works. Now, does the exhaust actually make the car go? No, that's the engine. But if the engine is on, you must produce exhaust. So the idea is if you never have exhaust coming out the tailpipe, it's because you don't have a functioning engine. If you never have good works that God has ordained beforehand, it's evidence that you don't really have genuine faith. That's the analogy, and I hope that helps someone out there. But yeah, Peter, I'm sorry, go on. Many times I've heard um, Catholics say that, you know, they feel they get their salvation through their works. And again, that's a, that's a false teaching. Exactly. For, for two reasons. Again, number one, they have a different Christ. The Christ of the Bible is sufficient for our atonement, sufficient for our righteousness. But second, it's the works that they're doing aren't given by Christ. So where did Jesus say, hey, by the way, um, if you don't trust in me, you've got a purgatory option? Well, he never commanded that. He never promised that. What about the penance? So what did they do? They made it up. Right. Yeah. So their works are based on the imaginations of men. And even atheists do good works. Yes, exactly. Well said. Very good point, Peter. Thank you. Very fitting end. Well, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I do pray that we as a people would persevere in faith and obedience to you. We pray that we would really heed these warnings, that we'd realize that these warnings are valid and that they're really serious, but that by your grace, your power, your spirit, you will enable us to persevere. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that we'd remain in your doctrines and that you'd give us opportunity over the holiday season to confess Christ, to preach his name, uh, to teach others about your goodness, your greatness, your mercy and that you would regenerate hearts before us, enabling people to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.